0: Thank you very much for, for coming today. Um, it's great to see so many people here um, interested in talking about bibliometrics and um, things. Oh, we have a very interesting agenda. I'm very looking forward to hearing all of you who are speaking. Um, and First, I'd like to introduce Nikki Whitsed, who is the Library Director here at the OU, to give a, a welcome to the meeting and a, an introduction. Thank you. Thank you, I, I just want to uh, add to my um, welcome our university and the library service. And um, I'm amazed at how many people have, um, have come. come There's a seat somewhere, maybe got a seat here I think, to near them. Um, I think it, we've actually got a waiting list meeting, so we could have had a lot more people, it really is an, uh, an area of growing interest. And I'm looking forward to hearing all the speakers today to learn more about what uh, bibliometrics is all about. I think this gives us, um, as librarians, um, a real opportunity to think, uh, think out our role, um, moving on from the institutional repositories and looking at ways in which we can support our academics um, in this difficult environment when research funding uh, is so uh, competitive. So. I hope you have a, a really good day, and I look forward to meeting some of you perhaps for lunch. And I'm going to sleep in and out some planning. i over to you, John, lovely, thank you. Our um, uh, first speaker is um, Jonathan, joining from the Thomson who very kindly have sponsored the event. Thank you,
1: Fenner. Thank you, uh, Nikki. Um, The uh, presentation that that uh, I'm starting with is, I hope, um, a useful way of setting out some background for the day. There are some great speakers uh, here who are going to cover some of this ground in a lot more detail uh, than than, than I will do, but I will introduce some topics. If you want to see the way in which... um, bibliometric and related uh, data are used in reporting and in policy. We also have some reports here. Um, There is one on the United Kingdom, which I see some of you picked up, and hot off the press, we have a new report on Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Korea, uh, which is here, and I've already distributed some of those around. Please, please do take them, otherwise the OU will have to pulp them all when, when you leave. Um, or they could be sent out to students, of course.
0: Um,
1: so my, I work for Thomson Reuters, where I'm director of R&D. My background is that I used to be a biologist a long time ago, and then I became a science policy advisor in the, 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 the uh, long-forgotten Department of Education and Science. Uh, where I was responsible for the science budget, and then I went to Leeds as Director of Research Strategy, and we uh, started doing bits of consultancy work for um, the the DES and others, and uh, out of that grew a company called Evidence, and we sold Evidence to Thomson Reuters in 2008, so that's where I'm working now. Uh, So I've seen the evolving use of information on publications and citations over an unduly long period, Um, and uh, so so we've gone from the very first look at how can we make use of, of, of this important output from research to... Uh, the much more sophisticated employment of, 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 of this kind of information alongside other information today. What do I tap onto?
0: Um, if you press on the,
1: that? the
0: next arrow.
1: And, uh, great. Good. Okay, so for the first slide, I'm actually going back to a piece of work that was done by uh, Luke Leisdorf and Paul Walters uh, some while ago, and this is just identifying where citations have come from. And although uh, we understand that every piece of of, of of research that is published refers back to its antecedents, to the, infi- the information and the knowledge on which it is based, the conventional form of the citation is is, is relatively recent. And so what uh, Luke and Paul have plotted here is what they call the rise of the the modern citation which identifies the uh, individual author, the piece of work and the date when it was published and that is what allows us then to track between one piece of work and the references on which it relies and to go forward and to see what later pieces of work Cite refer back to that particular publication. And that gives us our network of citation relationships. And the fundamental assumption in all of this. In the way in which publication citation data are used. Is that those pieces of work which are cited more often. Have a greater significance of some kind. Than those pieces of work which are not cited at all. And we can discuss whether that's (coughs) sound or not, and I'm sure other people refer to it later. But here is uh, a standard article record. Um, Every article record contains as you know, I hope, a vast amount of metadata which we can make use of for all kinds of different purposes. So what we have here is, first of all, the identification of the organisations that the authors belong to. So we can look at collaboration. Well, the first thing we can do is identify where the publications come from. And in this case, the lead author, or at least the first named author, is from the University of Plymouth. And, appropriately, the second named author is from the Open University. So, this identifies a publication that belongs to the University of Plymouth, but it also says that the Open University and the University of Plymouth work together. So we have information about collaboration, and that may be important because that gives us another network of interactions between organisations. We can also assign every publication to a category, because the publication belongs in a journal, and groups of journals are... ...brought together in categories of cognate literature. Literature that has more in common with other journals in that category... ...than it does with the rest of the available literature. Now those journal categories were originally designed around co-citation clusters. And frankly they've drifted a little from that now. And the exact relationship in some of the categories is sometimes a little obscure and in the web of science there's quite a lot of overlap between categories. Some people would say that journal categories are losing their definition and that actually we have to look at every journal, every article as an item on its own and look at contextual information around that. And one of the ways in which we might do that would be by using keywords which allow us to link between articles. Here are a set of articles that all refer to the same key topic, either in their abstract or in the keywords associated with them. So we can build up a set of articles that all reference a particular topic, and we can examine the nature of that literature and report on it. Which organisations are working in this area? When were they publishing? Who else did they publish with? and critically in these analyses how often are they cited for this article we've got 147 cited references that's because it's a review it's in the annual review of ecology and systematics and this item has been cited 265 times so Our gut feeling would be that if we look at an article record like this, that this is an item that if it's cited 265 times is a relatively highly cited article. We don't need to know very much more. 265 sounds like a big number. But actually we do need to know quite a lot more because citation cultures vary a great deal between fields. The way in which people write articles, the number of items that they reference, depends very much on the field that they're in. So molecular biologists tend to write short, very focused articles where a huge amount of methodology and background information is summarized as references. And they publish a lot of articles in a year. So there are lots and lots of citations around in molecular biology. Whereas when we look at chemistry and physics and even more in engineering, articles tend, on the whole, to be somewhat longer. They're more descriptive on methodology. There are fewer references in the articles. Fewer articles are published by an individual in a year. The abundance of citations is much lower. So we have characteristic citation curves and what we've got here is obviously a timeline along the bottom and we've got average citations to papers published in a particular year. So this is for 1999 the average number of citations to papers published in organic chemistry. And this line goes up and down because this this describes the citation growth pattern but it's the number of of citations to papers published in that year. So it isn't that the citations have gone down at any point. The citations continue to grow. But in some years there are more citations than others. So we need to know these background citation rates in order to make sense of any particular citation count to contextualize. And here we have an interesting example with nanoscience of a field that 20 years ago was cited in rather the same way as other physical sciences. But because it's become of extreme policy interest, because it is cutting-edge science, it's an area that a lot more people are working in, and the rate of knowledge development has accelerated, that the citation rates are now looking much more like the life sciences. So things change in different fields as well. <clears throat> once we can index citation counts, once we have a relative or a re or a normalised citation count for a paper, which takes into account the field that it's published in, and which takes into account the year that it was published, we can then begin to aggregate our papers to look at a sensible index of relative citation impact for a research group or a department or a university and compare it with others. And What we have here are data that do that but they do a little more. They show us that these citation indices actually bear a reasonable relationship to expert judgment. And that's very important, because there is no point in doing any of this bibliometric stuff unless it bears some relationship to the kind of judgment that somebody working in the field would also make. What we've got here is data from the research assessment exercise. And it's actually from RAE 2001 what we have along this axis is the relative citation impact of the articles that were submitted to the REE. So remember, every academic submitting four items. We can pull those four items out of the REE database. We can match them up to a citation database. We can see how frequently those items were cited, normalise those citation counts for the year they were published, the field that they were published in, and we got an average for a particular unit, each one of these markers on here is for a university submission. The average for a university submission to UOA eighteen in two thousand and one, and you can see here that compared to world average, most of these averages are above world average. We're going up here at about four, five, in some cases six times world average. Those are the four items selected by those people. But those people came from departments where there was a lot of other stuff published as well. So on this axis, we've taken the information for the same university, for that department of chemistry. We've looked at all of their publications over the census period for the REE And we've taken the average impact of those articles. So here we've got a unit... Where the articles submitted were about twice world average. And that was from a pool of publications that were about one and a quarter times world average. So that tells us immediately that academics are actually quite intelligent. Which I'm sure is something you doubt from time to time. They are able to select relatively good publications to submit to the RAE they have made a selection of the more highly-cited items. And there's a relationship between those as well. But we also have in here a little bit more information because we can split all of those submissions up according to the grade that the panel awarded that submission as a whole. And what we've got here at that end the Submissions that were five star, five, four, and threes. So the peer judgment which did not use citation data (coughs) awarded a grade which is coherent with the relative position that we would have assumed had we looked at the bibliometric data. There is a good relationship between the peer judgment and the bibliometric information. But there is also a lot of residual variance. So here we've got a grade 3 department where actually the average citation impact is is relatively high. So there is a relationship between expert judgment and bibliometric indicators but they are not a direct substitute for one another. We cannot abandon peer review and just use bibliometrics. Bibliometrics support peer review. So where did all this come from? What we have used it for this is the Thomson Reuters Web of Science. There are now other products also available. This grew out of a paper that Eugene Garfield published in Science in 1955, where he first described the relationship between citation counts and some notion of impact. He didn't say this was quality, and we don't assert now that bibliometrics are giving us a direct measure of quality, but he did say the papers that are cited more often have had some greater impact in some way than papers that are not cited at all. So his work grew into the Science Citation Index. That was first used by the National Science Foundation in the US in the 70s to build up their science and engineering indicators. Work here in Europe extended that a lot further and began to develop a theory, a field of scientometrics. Behind this, now all these data were available, and in 1992, for the first time here in the UK, the Advisory Board for the Research Councils, which I was working for, began to work with ISI, Garfield's company in Philadelphia, to look at the relative bibliometric performance of the UK in different fields compared with, with other countries. Now, why were we doing this? <coughs> well, the reason why research evaluation emerged here in the UK was because we were running out of money. There is never enough money to support all the good ideas that people have. So we have to be selective about which research gets supported. And that's inevitable. We have to make choices. And that doesn't mean that we're necessarily choosing between good and bad. It often means that we're choosing between different shades of good. In 1960, there was a huge investment in higher education research. And that was captured by Harold Wilson's comment about the white heat of the technological revolution. In the 1970s, we had the oil crisis. And when the Labour government came back in, Shirley Williams, who was then Secretary of State for Education made the comment about the need for retrenchment and for the scientists the party is over that we were going to have to be very very selective about how money was distributed by the early 1980s the university grants committee and the advisory board for the research councils had reached a consensus that there needed to be far greater selectivity in the way that money was distributed both for research grants from the research councils, and as core research funding to the universities from the UGC. And that led, in 1986, to the... Can I switch this off?
0: You can do... um...
1: Thanks. (laughs) To the first research selectivity (laughs) exercise. I don't know how many other people can remember the first research selectivity exercise. You were far too young. But in the first research selectivity exercise, people submitted their entire publication portfolio. And there were over a hundred panels. It was pretty chaotic. In 1989, that was slimmed down, it was renamed the Research Assessment Exercise. And in nineteen ninety two, we ended up with the what we'll call the first proper model of people submitting a recognizable Portfolio of evidence, including four publications per research active academic. And that ran through to 2008, and now for 2014, we have the Research Excellence Framework ahead of us. Basically, the same kind of model as we've been running from 1992. At the same time as this was going on, we had a significant evolution in research management in universities. Back in the 80s, Universities had vice chancellors, and most universities had a pro vice chancellor. Hardly any of them had a pro vice chancellor for research. By the early 90s, most universities had a pro vice chancellor for research and another pro vice chancellor who did other things. And over that period of around about five, six, seven years from 89 through to the mid 90s, we see this change in research, administration, and management with the appearance of strategic research funds, research committees at university level, then at faculty level, then at departmental level, and much more of a management ethos around research, which would have been complete anathema back in in, in the mid-80s. So this process has had a very, very pervasive effect not just on the way, in the way in which we look at the data, but actually in the way in which we go about our, our, our business. In the way in which we think about, about research and how research is carried out. What we're interested in all the time is, with limited resources, how do we do more, better research? That, that's the goal here. What we're trying to do is we're trying to do more research and we're trying to do better research with a limited amount of resource that we have available. But the problem is that research is innately hidden in a black box. And if you're an expert, you can walk into a department as you would walk into a library and get a pretty good sense within half an hour or an hour of is this place working properly or is this place stagnating? As somebody who knows a field, you can do that. But how do you translate that into something that you can show to a research funding body? That you can show to a minister to explain what is good research and what is less good research? Where should we put our money? Where should we withdraw our funding? So we have to look for something else. And what we've been using for a long while has been output information. We're not actually looking at research quality, we're looking at research outputs and citations to those as a substitute for being able to look directly into here. And as time has gone on we have been able to build up that environment in which we look at research quality to draw on a wider and wider range of information. So that now Our journal information citations are set alongside all sorts of other things. We have books, we have conference proceedings. We know how important grey literature is, but it's very, very difficult to assess. The most important output from the research base is almost certainly people. We want to track people, if we possibly can, into employment, to see where they go, to see where those people are being trained. We know we have effects not only on academia through publications, but also we have economic and we have social impacts of research. And the REF now sets out to try and capture some of those. But we also need to think about the input side. And what would be even better is to go back further and see how well we're translating original ideas into proposals that get funded and then produce significant outputs. So, this is now research information management. This is what we're aiming for. But in all of this, it is very, very important to remember that we're not actually looking into the black box. That is where the expert judgment still sits. So, what we have here are not metrics. We call it bibliometrics, but they're not metrics. We measure the number of citations, but that's just the number of citations. And then we use it as an indicator of some kind of impact or significance of the publications we're looking at. And we need multiple indicators in order to try and locate where we are in the research landscape. And the multiple indicators that we use give us a rough position... But they don't exactly locate us. And we need to remember that. Because a lot of the time people quote individual statistics as if they are an absolute measurement. And they're not. Things like journal impact factor tells you something about how often articles in that journal are cited. It tells you nothing whatsoever about the quality of a particular article in that journal. So we have to be very, very careful when we see language that starts substituting considered balanced judgment and putting in place simplistic indicators and pretending that those are giving us a complete answer. Because they are absolutely not. The outcome of the evaluation process in the UK has actually been pretty positive. I've already described the the management change but something else that changed was the relative impact of UK research. So here we have the relative impact, remember this is normalised citation impact across the entire UK research base. One is world average, so we start off above world average, this is through from 81 through to 2009 in these data. Each one of these arrows is when A research assessment exercise took place. In the early 80s, there was a decline in progress in the average relative quality of UK research. We were short of money, and that money wasn't being distributed very effectively, and it wasn't producing very good research outputs. So, selectivity exercise came in and transmuted into the RAE, and from that point, we see a progressive improvement in the average citation impact of UK research publications. Now, this doesn't prove, in any sense, that the RAE produced the outcome, because the RAE was part of a consensus research environment. In which people were saying there must be greater selectivity, we have to have more conscious management, we need to think about what we're doing, we need to think how we're publishing. So all of these things were happening, but the REE was one of the major signals in that environment, which is telling people that they had to think more consciously about the research that they were doing. And the outcome of that has produced this significant improvement in the UK's relative position as reflected in these indicators. And that was a pervasive improvement. If we break down the performance in relation to the different grades coming out of an REE, this is the improvement through the 90s in four graded departments, three A's and three B's. And if you look at the rubric for the REE and what it says about the average quality of research which is associated with different grades then for four it says predominantly national with some part of international quality research. And What we see for the fours was that they started off around world average and progressively improved to being substantially above world average by the end of that period. So again there's quite a good relationship ...between the judgement of a peer panel and what the indicators are telling us. There was also other behaviour that was going on underneath this. Ways in which, as a result of evaluation, people started to think about what they did... ...and the way in which they presented themselves. And this goes on, whatever you try and do to correct things... Every time you start evaluating a system, the behaviour of the system changes. Some of that behavioural change is what you want. Some of it is happenstance. Some of it may be quite contradictory to what you want. And however clever Hefke tries to be, there are 50,000 academics out there who will be thinking about ways of gaming it, and you can't control all of it. But at a large scale, as we go through 96, 2001 to 2008... This is breaking down the different units of assessment into some broad areas of science, engineering, social science, humanities and arts. We've got the number and proportion of different outputs submitted by academics to the REE. For the scientists, 90%, 95% are journal articles. For the engineers, we start off with 30% conference proceedings, 15% conference proceedings conference proceedings with an increase in the relative frequency of journal articles and for the social scientists we start off with 49% journal articles by 2001 65% of what's being submitted are journal articles in 2008 75% of what social scientists submitted were journal articles Does this represent a change in the way in which social scientists were publishing? Or does it represent a change in what social scientists thought of as the material that best represented their highest quality research? It certainly was a change in what they actually put forward to the REE for the peer panels to look at. Now, the problem with everything that I've shown you so far is that it's been about average citation impact (coughs) and research activity is very very skewed. A small number of people have a huge amount of research money and most people have rather little money for their research. Some research groups have many students in their cohort and a producing lots of PhDs every year. Other people maybe have one PhD student every five years or so. And the same for publications. And amongst publications, the same for citations. That some publications are cited an enormous number of times. Many publications are cited hardly at all or are never cited. It's very skewed. Averages do not represent the middle, the centre of the distribution. The averages are well above the median. So the underlying distribution isn't what you think it might be. And that can be very confusing when it comes to explaining it to managers and policy makers. And the average is really only one component of what you need as a fuller description of the distribution of performance and activity. So we prefer to look at different kinds of diagram that unpack that impact in various ways. This is still using average citation impact and what we've got here is over 20 years the average citation impact for a set of G7 countries and China and on this we can see the improvement in the relative performance of China but it's still a long way behind UK, France, Germany, USA. So, that's fine. We've got nothing to worry about. The Chinese publishing a lot of stuff, but, you know, it's not really that good. However, if we unpack that average and we look at the distribution of performance, we see that the Chinese are producing a great deal of excellent research. What we have here is a scale of relative impact. And world average is here. These are the papers which have never been cited. It's a 10-year sample. It's a 10-year sample. Yeah, it's a 10-year sample. These are papers that have not been cited. Some of them, when this analysis was done, were relatively recently published and will be cited at some point. Some of them are never going to get cited, even by the people who wrote them. In these categories, we have cited papers. And there's world average. This category is papers cited world average to half, half to a quarter, a quarter to an eighth. These are papers that are cited world average to twice world average, two to four times world average, four to eight, more than eight times world average. Remember, all these papers, their actual citation count has been normalized for the subject category they're in and for the year they were published. And here's the Chinese curve. And this is the percentage of their output over the 10-year period. 10%, 20%. Because the numbers of papers for the UK and China are somewhat different over that period. China has now overtaken the UK, gone way past it. But we've got different numbers of papers here. So this is the percentage of papers in each of these categories. And what we can see is that although the Chinese have many, many more unsighted papers relative to their total output than the UK does... They are already producing papers here that are cited four to eight times world average. About 5% of their papers and 1.5% of their papers are cited more than eight times world average. That's very, very highly cited. So already by unpacking we're beginning to see a somewhat different picture than averages. This is UK data, and here we have separated out the Golden Triangle of Cambridge, Oxford, UCL, Imperial, and the LSE from the higher education sector as a whole. And we can see again here this excess of relatively highly cited papers from those universities. ...compared to the rest of the HE sector. So this is explaining a lot more... ...than we would get from just looking at averages. There is no single form of impact. That's the other thing we need to remember. When we look at university research performance... ...when we look at publications and citations... ...we're looking at activity across a wide range of subjects. And if we pile it all up together... We're hiding a huge amount of information. So in these footprints, we've broken down the citation impact for a set of laboratories that are working in molecular biology, in particular in the context of cancer research. Here, as a comparator, we have uh, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. This is Emble at Heidelberg. This is Sloan Kettering in New York, Salk Institute, Scripps. So these are leading research institutes around the world, working in related areas, but you can see here that their footprints differ. So that EMBL has by far the highest citation impact in genetics and heredity, but over here in immunology, it's much less than it is for some of the others, and it's the Salk that's highest. So a single average wouldn't have described any of this for us. We need to break down into distributions. We need to break down into components before we really understand what's going on. Another way of looking at the same kind of data are bubble diagrams. Because those allow us to put multiple indicators about the same data onto one diagram to look at in one go. What we have here are uh, diagrams for China and for the US. And this is from a study where we were asked to look at research about clean vehicles. Each one of these bubbles represents a particular institution. Berkeley here, MIT, Zhejiang, Tsinghua, over there. On this axis we have the percentage of the institute's papers that are in the world's top 10%. Here we have their average citation impact. The size of the bubble is scaled to the volume of papers that they're producing in this research area, and the crosshairs are the national average. Now, you can take your institution's publications and produce a similar diagram, where you would either look at yourself against another institution, or you would break down the research areas inside the university. But this is producing far more information than you would get from just looking at any point metric. And that's the important thing with this information, is that it needs to be broken out. Evaluation approaches. People don't always agree on how best to evaluate any research area. Bibliometrics is trotted out as, well, this is the way we should do things. It's incredibly useful. But different people have different views, according to the research area that they're in, and their experience of the data, about how indicators should be used. Very few programs have a single objective, and that needs to be taken into account as well. So, evaluation, if it's done at all, should be built in at the beginning as part of planning a program, not introduced at the end. It's very, very bad to be called in at the end to evaluate something which is already over. You have to compare like with like. You've seen in the earlier diagrams, you can't directly compare molecular biology and engineering let alone molecular biology and social sciences. There are all sorts of merit objectives. The reasons for doing something may be because you want to increase the amount of postgraduate training you have, rather than necessarily to focus solely on research itself. It may be about building up capacity. It may be about developing facilities. So that needs to be brought, brought into account. Timeliness, pervasiveness, excellence, none of those are necessarily directly measured by any of the indicators. Bibliometrics is a good way of getting an indicator for excellence if you accept the relationship between impact and peer judgments. But you always need those peer judgments in there as well. And with a good and well informed system, You gradually work from the what happened, where evaluation only just gets brought in at the end, through to a richer and richer system of information management, which I think is the area that you're all squarely in the centre of, so that you can produce more and more informed outcomes for the people who are doing the research. Thank you.
0: Right, we have about five minutes or so for, for questions for Jonathan. Does, does anybody have any, um, anything they would like to ask him? Have you blown us away with <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a quick question. The, the graph that you showed with China getting more citations. Do you know if those citations have come from articles <coughs> worldwide or from other authors in China? Is that
1: something that's.? Well, that's a very good question. So, so as you get into, and I, I would guess that probably somebody will talk about self citations later on. So, 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 so perhaps we'll, we'll be able to come back to this. Yes, self citation is, is an issue. Self citation can happen at a number of levels. So, self citation is when people cite their own work. Self-citation can be when somebody in your laboratory cites your work because you're working together in the same place. Self-citation can be at a national level. So when people in the UK cite other UK papers, is that more or, 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 or is it less valuable than a citation that comes from outside the UK? And Hefke has looked at that. Hefke is interested in putting information to the REF panels, about the balance of citations that are domestic and international. So that's where, where, where your question is coming from is what does that look like for China? And there is a widespread supposition that a relatively high proportion, and some would say a disproportionate part of the citations to Chinese articles are from elsewhere in China. But it is unsurprising at the present stage of development of the Chinese research base, that people elsewhere in the world are still relatively unaware of the emerging excellence of research in China. So it isn't getting cited by people elsewhere perhaps as much as it's due. And of course, people elsewhere in China are very aware of their own research and are beginning to engage more and more with global research. So, there is a disproportionate balance of domestic and international citations for Chinese research. I'm not sure we should draw too many conclusions about that. But about the worldwide yeah, impact of It is, sense. it is, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, at the moment, I think we're seeing what we, we see with, with China and Brazil and something with the career, or the career more, more established is that the, these research bases are expanding so fast that the dynamics and the characteristics of, of the research base in those countries is not like the dynamics of G7 countries, which have had an established research base for a quarter of a century. We've been through a generation more of, of, of relatively well-funded researchers with, with good facilities, and our indicators look pretty much the same from year to year. And the Chinese indicators are like that. So completely different and very disruptive. So, so they are different.
0: You used an example from chemistry to show um, how well the, uh, the citation data linked with the scores from the <coughs> in the RE. Um, are there examples when it doesn't work quite so,
1: um, so well? I know there are questions about cross-disciplinary research. Yes, yeah, yeah. well <coughs> um, you won't be surprised that I, I, I chose the best example <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> because what I wanted to demonstrate was that there that there can be a coherent relationship between peer judgment and what we get out of indicators. So the indicators are not just you know, uh, they're not the data we're using because they're the data available to use. They're the data we're using because there is a relationship. But that relationship is more or less fuzzy in different areas. So if we looked at um, uh, management business studies, then the relationship is is there, but it's not as good as it is for chemistry. If we look at economics, it's a bit better. Because there are differences in the way in which people publish in Management and in and economics, which are relatively closely related areas, which lend themselves more to a, or less to a quantitative approach. So, 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 quantitative indicators would work more soundly for economics research in the UK and for management and business research in the UK. We shift to a different jurisdiction, a different country yeah. where the culture and economics is a little bit different, we would have to check again. It may not work as well there. If we shift the states, I suspect it would probably work. It, it, even, it, there would be an even better correlation. If we look into the humanities, the relationship is much weaker. But it's not zero. So if we if we, if we, if we present analysis to, back to an expert panel, then they'll look at it and say as they have done for history. Yeah, that's, that looks about right. But you can't substitute their work and put the quantitative analysis in instead. That will not do. As I said, the residual variance is far too high for that. So if we look at what Hefke is agreeing to do for the REF, then we see building indicators as something that will be made available to panels in science and technology areas, but are not going to be used for panels in other areas. And (coughs) that makes sense, because that's the area where it can be most useful. What I think is is a good way of, of using information is actually as a challenge mechanism, that you allow a peer review panel to carry out its work, to look at a whole portfolio of information, to arrive at some indicative judgments of what they think is excellent, very good, good, less good, and then you present them with quantitative information and you look for the variance between their judgment and the quantitative information and you then you don't don't say this is wrong or that's wrong you just look for why there is divergence in outcome and and that divergence of outcome may be very interesting in itself that this panel judges this to be very good although the indicators the quantitative indicators don't suggest that and these are the reasons why, because we understand it's an immersion research area, which is rapidly becoming more important, but that hasn't appeared in the publication later yet. Okay. Thank you very much. There will be time for some more
0: questions after we've had all of the speakers this morning. Thank you very much. Thank that you. Was very interesting.